Ramu ancha kon langara la inara kra kotu samu tarakamu e atamu kemamu jonama otunin. Welcome to Con Langer, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in New Jersey is Mike Lentine. I'm actually in Pennsylvania. Hello. Oh, he's in Pennsylvania now, but still on the East Coast. And then on the other side of me, over in sunny California, we have the one and only David J. Peterson. Macho Maroon. Yay! There you go. Yay. There's your, there's your hiatus. <laughs> uh, I was going to do a little fanfare, but it doesn't seem in place. Yeah, it's it. That was the 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 uh, Dothraki voice kind of uh, shuts down any fanfare, doesn't it? Yeah, it makes you afraid that David's going to hurt you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's this. That's what. Anytime I say anything in any voice, that's exactly what you should be thinking. To be on anytime you say anything in any voice, got it. <laughs> so anyway, since William was, it was going to be out for a while, I was trying to find someone who could, uh, who could sort of sit in his chair and do a decent job of it. And, and David immediately came to mind. So, uh, David is, of course, president of the Language Creation Society and creator of Dothraki for Game of Thrones. You guys all know all that because he's been on here twice before. Anyway, so, David, you had a story you were going to tell top of the oh, show. Oh, yeah, I could. First, I just want to say I've seen William Annis of late. This is past weekend I saw him. Mm. We were, bo- we were That's both right. in the same place. Yeah, we were, we were both in, in Chicago for the World Science Fiction Convention. And, um, That's right. You were on panels together, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. He uh, uh, he uh, he 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 did a good job. He he held his own. And in fact, he the panel that we were on together. It was one of the three that I was on. Was the one we were on together. That was easily the most successful. And it was the one that I thought that nobody was going to go to and was going to be the driest. It was just introduction to linguistics. That was it. But it was like packed, and it was really good. So nice. um, if you if you're listening to this, uh, uh, kudos, William. Um, you're a good guy, and awesome. you're taller than I expected. Have you ever seen him in person? I have not. Yeah. I have. I've seen him sitting in a chair on the picture in, uh, you know, on in the interwebs. But yeah, no, he's he's tall. I've 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 uh, stayed in his house, so yeah, I know how how big he is, and I also know what his voice sounds like in person, which is totally different from what it sounds like over Skype. <laughs> really. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 I know. I do exactly the same thing when I get on these things. I have to kind of like put on a voice so that, you know, I sound, um, you know, respectable. I mean, okay. if it's just if it's just me with my wife, I mean, you know, it's pretty much, yeah, I just, you know. I don't want anybody to touch my stuff. You don't touch this stuff. It's mine. That's kind of the way I talk usually. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's actually really hard. It kind of strains my vocal cords to talk like this, to do the whole California thing. Um, I prefer just to, you know, speak in my Armenian accent like I usually do. Actually, when I get on the show, I'm. It's usually like right now. It's uh, almost quarter to midnight, so this is my my brain's unplugged voice usually. So 
Um, this is a special voice just for conlangery that I don't know if I can cultivate outside of it. So, so can we call this conlangery unplugged? <laughs> uh, sometimes it seems like it's running off of just unplugged and it's possessed by demons, but yes. Oh man. All right. Okay. So here's the, here's the story I was going to tell you. This is a, it's kind of a sad story because I don't get to give you some really, really neat examples that I want. But, um, so when, when I was, when I was going to graduate school and by the way, uh, George, now that you're there, you should take advantage of this, um, at the student library. Um, you know, if you're just an undergraduate, you check out books for like a month or whatever. Um, but if you're a graduate student, you can check books out for a year. Yes. Uh, and renew them indefinitely. Now, if, some, if somebody asks for them after the first year, then you have to return them, you know, or, you know, you're supposed to. Um, but uh, so what happened was um, I went to UCSD's library, and I found these two handsome hard, hardbound volumes. Uh, one was the, um, the Umarmiut Ukalungiha Mumikichirudinit, which is... The basic Umar Mute Eskimo Dictionary. So that was one of them. And then the other one was a grammar book. I thought, oh, this is cool. So I checked these out. And, you know, I just kind of looked at them, and uh, periodically I picked them up. And I really, really enjoyed them. So I checked them out again my second year. And then my third year, I checked them out again. And then I left graduate school and moved up to Orange County. And I, So I, I took them with me. Um, and then it came to the point where they would have to be renewed again, but this time I was no longer a graduate student. So then, you know, I called up a friend of mine who was in the department who I hadn't talked to in like a year. I said, hey, how's it going? Listen, you want to do me a favor? And then, <laughs> and then he checked them out, and then I took them again and kept them in Orange County. Uh, and then I believe I had him check them out one more time. So essentially I had these books. They were just mine for like five or six years. Uh, finally he came to me, you know, one day he came up to visit and he said, so you know what I'm going to ask, right? And I said, no. And he said, I need the books back. I have to return them. They're, they're on me. I'm going to be in trouble. (laughs) So I was so, I was, I was crushed because I really just thought of these as my books. So I gave them back to him. He returned them. I went onto Amazon you know, just thinking, you know, one day, because Aaron, my wife, suggested, you know, you might be able to buy them. Let me guess, they're like 500 bucks. They were there. The the hardbacks, I think, were like 500 bucks. But these were actually reasonably priced. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. And, you know, one had a very distinct yellow cover, and the other one had a very distinct orange cover. So, you know, I got them both. And then I get them shipped. And then this is what I get. First of all, the first book that I, I was talking about, you know, the Umarmiut Ukalungiga, and so whatever. The next one, though... Siglit inuvialuit ukausita kipu tight. I don't know. Anyway, but it's the basic siglit inuvialuit Eskimo dictionary. So it's a dictionary from a slightly different dialect. Hmm. It's, not, it's not the grammar book. So <laughs> it would be basically like if I had just ordered, a, you know, a dictionary of like, because, you know, Castilian Spanish and Valencian Spanish are very, very, very similar. I, I don't understand how they possibly got paid to do two different books for this. Um, so the point is I'm missing my grammar book, and I don't have the wonderful section, the page of translations where they start out with the word for caribou, and they start building up words until they're like, you know, words that are like, you know, 
uh, four, you know, four lines long that means something like, um, uh, you know, actually, I don't like going to hunt caribou with my friend because he's dishonest and it's a single word, um, which I think brings us to our topic for this week. Yes, our topic is agglutination. So um, this we kind of were, were deciding to go with a, a little bit. It's still a linguistics topic, but it's a little bit lighter because basically what um, agglutination is is and uh, and the the what David was just talking about were a couple of highly agglutinative languages. Um, agglutination is sort of building building up words by affixation. So an agglutinative language will have basically string, like it, you can build up like a string of affixes after or before the root, depending on um, how the language is, is uh, working. And usually it's sort of one affix has one either either a either derivational meaning or um inflectional meaning sort of yeah. it's it's one category mm-hmm. so and a lot of people a lot of people early on start out with doing an agglutinative language because uh for conlangs because it's really really easy to to uh make one this is true yeah oh. Oh, by the way, I, I do have at least some examples. It's not a great example, but just to get us started, if you want, this is from this is from Siglet. So Sigletune. Siglet Inuvialuit. Alright. So if we start off with a root, Aulak, that means just leave. We can have Aulak Duak, that means he left. Or we can start building on it. So we have Aulak which means he wants to leave. Aulatribuktuak means he wants to leave again. And then, oh, Lord, am I going to be able to do this? And that means they say he has left. And then we have another one. means they say he left again. All right. So it's basically you start out with this root and you just keep on adding these suffixes and you keep on kind of extending the meaning a little bit. And it can with with a language like this it can just keep going on and on and on forever, but that's the longest example I could find at present. So anyway. Yeah. There you go. And then the those are those are the the highly agglutinating almost into the sort of polysynthetic area, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I was just gonna say I found I know Turkish is uh, commonly quote exam- given examples or provi- commonly provides examples for this agglutination. Turkish uh, is a good one. I just looked up on their Wikipedia um, the one that I saw back when I was studying um, at WVU. Um, so they show, for example, the word for house or the house is, uh, and I'm my pronunciation might be off, but ev, and then the house or houses is evler, and then if you say of your houses. Evlerini, zin, and then uh, he sure it was from your houses. Evlerini and then it just builds on there where each, like the plural, the location, the possessive, everything has one meaning. Like George was saying, low, relatively low meaning to uh, morpheme ratio. Yeah, that's that's I think uh, a key because 
basically when you have more than one meaning on a single morpheme, that's where you start going into the uh, the the fusional route. Mm-hmm. More inflective. Yeah. The uh, I kind of wanted to. I didn't. I didn't bring any examples in, but I just kind of wanted to. to I, I just kind of brought up a few notes on well, things you can do with agglutination and things things that you have to think about when you're doing an agglutinative language because yeah everybody a lot of people do this like really early on and it's fairly easy but there's a few things to look out for and there's a few things you can do to make a, make an agglutinative language a little more interesting so one thing david you know you you talked about this too in in your notes is uh you have to think about there's there's got to there's got to be some some sort of like phonological clues where a word begins and ends and there has to be some sort of structure within the the word right otherwise mm-hmm. you just have highly ordered uh a a, a um a, an analytic language with strict word order right and it, it's basically an analytic language where you're pretending that there aren't spaces between the words, <laughs> essentially. Um, to, to give you a concrete example, if you look through um, a, a dictionary of, uh, of, of, you know, one of the Eskimo languages, which, by the way, I highly recommend, uh, a good dictionary is going to have a very short section that has actual roots, so, you know, things, for, you know, basic roots for like, you know, caribou and whale fat, um, everything that would be very useful to you. Um, but um, then comes a very long section, an incredibly long section that is nothing but suffixes. And these suffixes have just incredible meanings. So, you know, like your, your usual aspectual stuff like future to try to. But then here's one that means to do the same thing together. Uh, a partner or companion in doing something uh, to become only. There's a habitual. There's another one that means only too much. Another habitual passivizer. Oh God, it's just it just goes on forever. But it's just like there's there's more than a hundred pages of just suffixes. And what they give you. So it's like you know there's always some useful information that you need in order to use anything correctly. What they give you is like the meaning, what the plural and the and the dual is going to look like, um, what type of word it's used with. And then specifically it says um, what happens to the suffix when it's added to a word that ends in a vowel, that ends in a K, that ends in a T, or that ends in a Q. Because those are basically the only sounds that a word can end in. And so what happens is that you kind of get these clues. Because let's say if you start off with um, a word like uh, caribou, and I always forget the word for caribou, even though that's always the one I look up. So let me look it up real quick. Uh, caribou. Oh yeah, tuktu, tuktu. Okay, so tuktu is going to end in a u, right? That means anytime you add a suffix after it, the suffix is going to look take on a certain look because it's um, attached to something that ends in a vowel. If something ends in a q, it always triggers a certain type of phonological change mm-hmm. in in the in the suffix. And mm-hmm. so, pretty much, just by hearing the word. You can figure out, you know, like where the suffixes are coming, what they're, what they are kind of are supposed to start with, and what the previous word ended with. And it kind of is just a very small clue that lets you know this word is still going. This word hasn't ended yet. Yeah. Yeah. 
that I think is important. That gets into another thing that I, I mentioned or was thinking about at least was it's, it's a, it's good to like, okay, that's a Nat Lang example. Obviously part of what, uh, gives you clues about the word, where the word begins and ends is phonological processes. Mm-hmm. And I think also not only can that all help you sort of keep tying the words together so that they don't end up looking like a bunch of individual words with, with no spaces. It also makes it a little bit more interesting, uh, by sort of not having the affixes look the same all the time. Yes. I mentioned that too. Um, one thing that I don't, one thing I don't like about agglutination when I first started and I first started playing like a, like a baby would play with their first set of Legos that are huge clunky things that they just put, put together. Um, I didn't like my words just looking like basically beads on a string and mechanically just put the same affixes next to each other. So um, over in my notes, I mentioned quickly that, like you mentioned, the phonological processes. I think we just visited a language like that last episode. Um, I had intense, like, uh, Sandy going on. Um, uh-huh. And then there's also, you know, phonological, like, um, lenition and all sorts of softenings and just surface... Um, surface level change that go on to the word um, to help like what you're saying just right there at that. But I, that's a great idea. Cause I, you know, I like it for some variety and interesting things to happen there. So. Um, yeah. Um, one of the, uh, uh, one of the other telltale signs from a couple of other nat links, uh, Turkish uh, is of course famous for after, uh, after a certain point, basically after the root, uh, you don't get rounded vowels um, unless it's uh, a very specific suffix like the um, there isn't any uh, yolk. I think that's the one. Um, but so it's like if you look at a word, you know, as these words get larger and larger, pretty soon you get to a point where you're at the end of the word and the only vowels are like uh and ah. Uh, mm. so just because that's naturally way, the way the phonology pushes it. Um, you get the same thing in a lot of the Finno-Ugric languages. Um, like Estonian and, and Mari, uh, with one notable exception being uh, Finnish, of all things. I know it's the most common for us. That was one of the ones where it's rare that you actually do get these rounded vowels later on in the word. Oh, okay. Now, does that have to do with particularly how... So, does... um Wait, does... I, I, I may have missed you say something. Does, does Turkish have vowel harmony? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, is that just like a trick of how the vowel harmony works? Like maybe it only works uh, on previous sounds and not on sounds afterward? Then? Uh, well, it's um, it's uh, it's uh, progressive vowel harmony. So it starts with the root and goes outward, um, and the and the language is exclusively suffixing. Um, but uh, the key is that it's not a symmetrical uh, vowel harmony system. So uh, in the high vowels you get the full gamut. So you have um, uh, a high vowel, front, back, round, and unround. You have those four vowels. Uh, in a lower version, you have um, the same set, but not all four vowels participate in harmony. Uh, specifically, you don't get um, O and Ö, the front uh, rounded vowel. You don't get those two participating in harmony. Instead, you only get A versus E, front versus back. And so as a result... 
since you can only have in suffixes, uh, basically, uh, if the suffix is going to participate in vowel harmony, it's going to have either this high or this low vowel feature. Um, because of that, it basically weeds out the possibility of there being any rounded vowels later on in the word. Because the second you get a low vowel, it's going to destroy the rounding. Because the only high vowel you can get after a low vowel is either E or U, and both of them are unrounded. So, mm-hmm. um, so whoever, whoever designed the Turkish language was brilliant. I think it was Zamenhof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but the, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And I think another thing about um, the, the internal structure of the word, obviously those phonological clues are probably going to be like the the uh, uh, uh um a very important thing to look at when you're trying to define where the word boundaries are but i think another thing is um i think you really need to also think about what order particularly your inflectional suffixes or inflectional affixes come in mm-hmm. uh a lot of times uh when you have languages i've i've heard of this with a lot of american indian languages that have crazy verb morphologies they have like a verb paradigm that has these slots that you know you have aspect slots and mood slot and uh the uh agreement slots that you plug things into and that way and that's sort of to explain how the, that's sort of a, a the uh, the linguistic analysis trick that that people use to to show that these certain uh, inflectional affixes occur in a particular order. So, and you you should probably do that for well nouns and verbs and whatever other word classes you have that are going to be agglutinative. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Sorry. I got a text there. Yeah. From Zamenhof, I think. But um, so uh, there are two things I want to say about that. Um, first of all, yeah, you'll see that's true uh, for certain affixes. Others are added in the so-called uh, logical order, which is that uh, the the latest one applied is the one that uh, you know governs it. So that you could actually have um, you know a passive followed by a causative, or a causative followed by a passive, and it would just mean two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, However, it's going to differ language by language on how they will allow those things. So certain, you know, if it, it could, if it can make sense, then a language can do it, but not necessarily all languages will do it. Um, uh, however, there are two, uh, two examples I want to bring up. One is, um, uh, one is the, there are these three languages called the Mari languages. So there's, there, there's one that's like called Lula Mari and one is called Meadow Mari. I, I can't actually remember what they are, um, but you can look them up. They're there. And um, they're interesting because they each have, um, you know, when it comes to uh, nominal inflection, uh, they are more agglutinating than inflecting, meaning that they have a separate plural suffix, a separate case suffix, and then a third one to add in there is a separate possessive suffix. Uh, now, what's interesting is that the three languages differ with respect to the order that they put these in. And they also differ within the case paradigm. 
So, uh, for example, and I'm not going to be able to get the languages right, so I'm just going to say, you know, we'll just call Mari 1. We'll say Mari 1 will have, um, say, um, uh, case suffix, plural suffix, possessive suffix for the grammatical cases. Then for the local cases, it'll have a noun, and it'll have a plural suffix, case suffix, possessive suffix. It'll flip the orders around. And then for the other language, we'll call this Mari B, it has kind of a similar thing, but completely opposite. However, it also changes the order depending on how many of those types of suffixes there are. So that, for example, if there's just case and plurality, it'll be case plural. But if there's case plurality and possessive, it will be case, uh, it'll be like plural possessive case, uh, which is totally crazy. Uh, and then there's another language, the third one, has like these varying word orders, and then for four cases at the very bottom of the paradigm, uh, the order is actually free. There, there's no difference between you know ordering like the the plural the plural and the possessive suffix. They can go in either order. People accept either one. They're liable to produce either one. And there's no pragmatics attached to them. Um, so that was just a really wild example that uh, can't be accounted for uh, syntactically, which is kind of the new wave in morphology, if you follow East Coast linguistics, they want to account for everything with syntax. It's nuts. Hmm. Um, the other one I wanted to mention was back to our old, um, our old Eskimo language friends. Um, they have uh, kind of uh, are freer with respect to this ordering of suffixes because the inflectional, I'm sorry, the derivational nature of their suffixes is so powerful so it's like you can have this huge old long word, and if it's like basically a verb, then you can just stick a, a, another suffix on there that turns it into a noun, and suddenly it's a noun. And then you start adding other suffixes, and you can turn that into a verb, and it just goes on and on forever. Um, it's just a wonderful language. It seems like, uh, and I'm no expert, and I'm not a native speaker, so this is probably wrong, but I'd like it to be true, so let's pretend that it is. It seems to me that what they do when they're creating sentences is they pick out whatever the topic is that they want to talk about. They start with that root, and then they just build up the rest of the word so that it says what they want to about that word. Um, and do whatever they need to do. You know, change it into a verb, add, in, incorporate nouns, and, and, and what have you. They have the machinery to do it. It's really, really cool. Um, by the way, this is my plug for the movie Atanarjua, where you actually get to hear this language spoken. The entire movie is in it. Uh, in English, it's called The Fast Runner. It's a Canadian movie. It's just wonderful, wonderful. I recommend it. Mm, is that Netflixable? That's a good <laughs> question. Man, you know what? You guys, you guys discuss things amongst yourselves. I am going to Netflix. I am Netflixing. Netflix away. <laughs> uh, don't go for for too long. But um, I think that's uh, some good points on there. Um, I will, I will take you on the, the point that it doesn't necessarily have to be a strict sort of paradigm and, and order. You might, you might want, to, you might want to play around with, uh, freer orders or, um, sort of alternate meanings for different ordering of, of affixes. But I think still you should have, you should think about it in, in, at, to, to some extent. You shouldn't just like, Say, I don't know, I'm just going to make a list of affixes, and that's what they mean. You should ha give some thought to uh, whether they occur in a certain order or or not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the third, the, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, and this is, this is most people, if they're, I think a lot of people listening here will think of this as kind of obvious, but, um, I want to bring up this. This is, this is, uh, I labeled this in my notes as a new blank warning. It's a, so an agglutinative language does not have to have, I mean, well, let me rephrase it this way. If you're making an agglutinative language, don't fall into a trap of necessarily every affix is a single syllable yeah. because that that will just get boring. You can have affixes that are just one segment, just a T in an agglutinative language. You can also have probably usually two-syllable, maybe three-syllable affixes as well. It doesn't have to be like, uh, you don't have to have root then dut, 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 dut. Yeah, I was, uh, when we were talking about, uh, the, uh, in, in to do, um, the Eskimo lang- language, I'm not gonna try, to, well, I will try to pronounce it, but, um, there, I found on the w- Wikipedia, they have two syllable, it's like, or maybe three syllable, um, suffixes, uh, they're tr- the word for I can't hear very well is, I probably killed that. Yeah. But, um, it, has, it shows nice examples of two-syllable uh, suffixes. So. Oh, here I've got I oh I've got some for you. <laughs> <laughs> I've, yeah. I've got, I've got two uh, uh, tetrasyllabic suffixes here. Um, and this one is just a pretty simple meaning. It means to have just finished. Um, so we have. Uh, Sabaktuak, that means he works. And then to have just finished working is he has just finished working. Savamanikli, son of a gun. Okay. Savam, Savamanikamikduak. There you go. So that's, <laughs> so the suffix there is M-M-A-N-I-Q-Q-A-M-I-Q. Is there a uvular uh, pl- uh, stop in there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Oh, this thing's got uvular stops everywhere. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much in every word. Here's another one. So this is um, a suffix to mean, that means to be glad or relieved that someone has finally done something. Okay? Okay. <laughs> so we have tikituak, uh, that, that means he arrived. And then we have tikipaluktainatuak, I'm glad that he finally arrived. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up, man. This is—it's just—it's just so awesome to just look through these suffixes. They're wonderful. Oh, oh my God! Oh, hold on a second. Hold on a second. No, no, no. This is good. Two beings or things involved in a relationship defined by the word base to which this suffix is added. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So, so we have nukak, uh, nukak. That's younger sibling, and nukari. That's brother and sister, one older than the other one. Uh, mm-hmm. how, about, how about this? Nurak, uh, that's calf. Nurak, no, wait, sorry. Nurak, I can do this, I can do this. Nurak, that's a calf and a cow together. <laughs> Just derived from the word for calf. It's incredible. <laughs> all right, all right. That, I got to stop looking um, at this. Kind of a nice, what the, you're talking about the cow and cow together. I know uh, Esperanto has a lot of suffixing too, right? Are all of them monosyllabic or are they? Um, they are mostly monosyllabic. Let's, yeah, let's, I, thought, let's I think I remember that. 
the great list of Esperanto suffixes. All right. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's there 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 are many of them. Um, yeah, I think they're mo- mostly monosyllabic. But uh, again, that's a conlang and a a uh, an oxlang to boot. I think my main point about bringing up that having polysyllabic suffixes or even single segment suffixes, which that depends on your syllable structure, whether you want to put those in or not. Um, my point was that having everything be one syllable, one syllable, one syllable is a little bit unnatural, and it's also a little bit boring, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Your, your point is well taken and certainly yes. true. Now do you want to hear about the mm-hmm. three suffixes that Esperanto has that are not monosyllabic? Which ones are there? Because they're, they're pretty sure. hilarious. They're pretty hilarious. Okay. One is Iliard, and that's and then another one is Ilion, and they're both for numbers. So, like, you could have, like, I, I don't even know what you would attach. What, what are some, uh, Unu. Okay, Unu is, right, the word for one in Esperanto, right? Five. Yeah. Yeah, so then I think this would be uh, Uniliardo would be um, one million, and Unilion would be one billion. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I could actually click on these things and see what they mean, but that would seem like a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, yeah oh, no, and it would be, I'm sorry, Unuiliono. Unuiliono. And I was right. I was right, by the way. So that's billion. So Unuiliono is one billion, and Unuiliardo is 1,000 hmm. billion. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was wrong. That's actually the suffix for 1,000 billion. Wait. Wow. No. 1,000 million. No, 1,000 million. 1,000 million. Yes. Okay. Oh, 1,000 million is a billion. Thank you. Wait. No, but no, it can't be. Okay, no. Well, um, it crap. depends actually a little bit on on uh, where you're from, but uh, <laughs> there, you 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 tell me what that means because <laughs> I can't figure it out. It's too mathy for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh wow! Um, huh. Thousand thousand billion. Okay, thousand billion, which. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the the who who wrote this and why why they wrote it that way. Because okay, ten to the fifteen. That's one with fifteen zeros. That would be a thousand million billion trillion. Oh, they're using the 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 weird scale that goes million right. and thousand million billion because fifteen is quadrillion. But anyway, these are the, the Iliardo are, oh, it's this, it's like a weird way of doing giant numbers that I can't really make much sense of. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I honestly, I don't know how math people take themselves seriously. I mean, uh, just playing around with numbers is ridiculous. Uh. <laughs> I mean, at our age, I just don't understand it. <sighs> you math guys, just make us money. That's all. That's all. That's all we're interested in. Um, the the other one is just uh, is obviously just borrowed from Greek. It's like so. You, if you had bios, or if that's a word, I don't think it is. But if it were, you'd have biologo, and olog has become a suffix in Esperanto. So that's the those are those are the three non monosyllabic suffixes of Esperanto. So there's your fun. But um, okay, so what was I going to say? Next. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to say this about Esperanto. Um, I took a class in Esperanto when I was at Berkeley. It was a student-run class, and it was taught by uh, two girls. One was from Russia, and the other was from Korea, uh, South Korea. 
and um, they grew up speaking Esperanto and their native language uh, bilingually. And then they both came to the United States and learned English, uh, and they were friends. Um, so the, um, they actually preferred to speak Esperanto because that was basically what they grew up with. Um, so the thing with um, a, a created language, if you actually start to get people that want to learn it, uh, they they always feel like they want to change it a little bit. They want to you know they want to fix it. Of like oh but you could do this and it's like no you can't you know so for for them you know as native speakers obviously it's like no this is the way you speak it. So if you actually look at the grammar of Esperanto, you can actually start building up some really long words um, and just and even make these like kind of single sentence words like you can get in in Eskimo type languages. Um, but the thing is, uh, as you do that, as, as you start to, to, you know, to really build these things up, uh, native speakers reject them. Um, they just start to say like, no, you can't say that. It's like, yeah, that's what that means, but you can't say that. Um, it, so it just gets to a point where basically, it, you know, it gets ridiculous and it's just not common. You know, you might, if somebody was trying to be clever and say they were, you know, especially in writing they were writing something literary, yeah, sure, they might build up a big, long word like this, um, and a native Esperanto speaker might look at it and, you know, get it and think, oh, wow, that's really neat. But it's just not something that's done in casual, everyday speech. Uh, same thing with word order, as I discovered. They, it just really threw them off every time I didn't do SVO word order. They preferred that, <laughs> um, even though, you know, there's nothing in Esperanto that says that you have to do it that way. Um, so I, I, I get the sense the same is kind of true of these agglutinating languages, the natural languages like Swahili. Um, there's a certain point where words start getting so big that it's just simply not common. It may be grammatical. You may be able to do it, but it's just not done, you know. It's hard to really, and it's hard to really put like a value and say at this point, you know, before this line, you know, the word is okay. After this line, the word is ridiculous. Yeah, you, know, you can't really do that, but it's just kind of a sense you get um, is is the impression that I've gotten from these agglutinative languages. I I wonder if like uh, building up way so many derivational units, um, particularly derivational. Uh, morphemes on top uh, in a stack on a word, if it might start to cause sort of a a a, a heavy cognitive load, and people might start having trouble processing it. But uh, mm-hmm. but like you mentioned, you you have in your notes, well, um, David, that uh, yeah, even in English we have anti-disestablishmentarianism, which yeah is touted as the longest sort of common word in English, but nobody ever uses it. Yeah. And chemists have the their own sort of sub, their own sort of uh, sort of uh, agglutinative processes for forming chemical names, but right. the, you only see those long chemical names in chemist, chemical papers. I doubt they'll even use them when they're like at conferences talking to each other. They'll probably use some sort of abbreviation. Right, right. Uh, But uh, so probably uh, a lot of any language that's going to have that has a fairly, fairly robust derivational system is probably going to have some ability to make fairly long words. But yeah, you kind of have to decide. I think since there's prob- there's no real hard limit, 
you probably will have to decide for yourself sort of how long are you willing to let words go on before you decide, yeah, this is not going to be like a common thing that I'm going to use in all my all the uh, all my uh, sample text and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's something that you can kind of get the sense of if you know you're developing a language like this. If you start to do some translation uh, and you just start to see, I mean, invariably, if you if you come up with a grammatical system, you come up with a language system, and you start to do some translation of you know at least a fairly lengthy text. It doesn't need to be complicated; it just needs to have a lot of stuff in it. You'll start to you'll start to pick up a sense for at least how you use the language, right? And what's just what's more common, and what what's kind of you know just an outlying grammatical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know you'll 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 probably get a sense of what's what's acceptably long, what's common, and then what's just uh, strange or you know just for special circumstances. Yeah, it's sort of like um, yeah. Yeah, once translation is good for sussing out a lot of different problems, but yeah, that's that is one one thing. I think I it 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 takes some translation to figure out how things work. And one thing that I've uh sort of really sensed coming onto the podcast that I've really realized is important is it's it's all well and good to develop these abstract systems and and all your 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 little uh inflectional paradigms and stuff but you need to at least start translating a few examples and probably work on do one or two texts as well uh in order to figure out how those things are actually used because like there's if you have this is getting a little bit off topic, but if you have, you know, a, an obligative mood, but you can't really figure out where to use it and what, what, how it changes meanings to it, then what's the point of having it in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the same with these really, really long words. If, if you have, if you can make a word that's a mile long, but you can't think of a reason that you would ever actually feel like using it, then why, why not? cut that down to size a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. that's... We were talking about... Um, I think all that spawned from polysyllabic uh, suffixes. Oh, right, yeah. And um, so, yeah, the on the one side, it's you don't have to stick with short ones, but on the other side, if you stick with... If you go with suffixes that are, like, five syllables each, you'll get sesquipedalian words that are too long and it'll be like end speech where you have to take 12 years to say anything that's worth saying mm. oh yeah 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 you don't have to you don't have to also don't make all your all your affixes the same length is the main point but you don't have to if you make everything like even make everything two syllables it's gonna make words too long so make a- just make it a mix uh, probably more shorter ones, uh, and fewer longer ones, but make it a mix of them. Now, trying to refocus just a little bit. Um, I don't, in your in your experiences with affix with uh, agglutinative languages, do they typically put the affixes all in the same place, like, or at least the ones that are serve the same purpose in the same place, or do they just? I mean, are there any languages that would have, say, like a 
I don't know, a plural prefix and a case prefix, but a gender suffix and an animacy suffix and maybe an infix thrown in there. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any like that, but I don't think it's outside the realms of, of uh, you know, possibility. Uh, Swahili is one I think that comes to mind that has kind of a nice mix of prefixes and suffixes. Um, if you start to look at languages from, you know, uh, Uralic, they're mm-hmm. almost exclusively suffixing. Yeah, uh, was. yeah, and and the same is true of um, of the Inuktitut languages. Uh, they're they're pretty much exclusively suffixing as well. Uh, that I, and who knows why that is, but it, it, we just it just seems to be true generally that uh, suffixes are more common yeah. uh, than prefixes, um, especially uh, you know inflection. Um, I have no idea why. That that should be. Uh, I, it's probably has to do. It probably has to do with linear precedence, and the idea that it being that it's it's difficult to process speech if you don't know the most important part of the word quickly. That's my guess. Yeah. Well, we could we could get on a whole discussion on the the theoretical possibilities there, but we kind we we we. In, in the past, we've tried to kind of steer away from theoretical discussion, but so let's not go too much speculation on that. But yeah, just do keep in mind that suffixes are more common. And I would say probably your language is going, uh, a language is going to at least sort of lean in one direction there. Yeah, that's what I usually did. I mean, I might have, I experiment a little bit with like, Maybe one pre one or two prefixes, but mostly suffixes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you usually, of course, if you're um, if you're doing this historically, if you're doing it from an evolutionary approach, it'll pretty much solve itself. Uh, because as these things grammaticalize, uh, it will be you know like, well, of course they go here because that's where that's where their position was uh, in the sentence uh, when it was a separate word. That's usually how these things uh, come up, unless you know you're looking at a special circumstance like uh, Latin, for example, where all the prefixes they're prefixes because they were prepositions, you know, um, and so it, it just made sense that they went onto the front of the verb. Now, why this uh, you know language had prepositions opposed to postpositions is something that's always interested me. But you know, I guess that goes as far back as PIE does. Oh, because it's SOV. Yeah. It, it, it's got kind of a mix of, of head final and head initial features. I, I think it probably is mostly, yeah, it's probably mostly head initial now that I think about it. Um, we're all kind of head initial in, in PIE, uh, even if we have head final tendencies. Uh, we're never as, as, as strongly head final as something like Turkish or uh, Japanese, uh, which is why it's always so difficult for us to learn those languages. Mm. Well, in Turkish, especially because they don't have cartoons that are as interesting as in Japan's cartoons. Hmm. <laughs> you need some motivation in order to learn a language. Oh, no, absolutely. I think we can probably wrap up the discussion a little bit. Do you, either of you guys have any final thoughts on the subject of agglutination before we move on to feedback? I had just one quick one. Um, back when you were talking about ways to kind of give a heads up to your speakers about where your word boundaries are. Um, you could also maybe, I don't know if um, having a certain kind of word always be at the end of the word. For example, like uh, similar to how Japanese has the particles, like mm-hmm. gawa, no, etc. 
Um, that could be a nice boundary or your phone of tactics. So if you can't have anything but say a uh, fricative end your word, you know, you can make that when you see a fricative at the end of a word, then, you know, you that will make kind of make it shake out on its own. Or if you have every word being constant vowel, constant vowel, constant vowel, and you see a consonant at the end, that might be how you how you kind of put that in there and give it make it a little bit easier, um, yeah. you know, to mark those. Well, let me tell you, Turkish is brilliant in this regard. Um, it's uh, it's exclusively suffixing, so the content part of the word is always going to be first, mm-hmm. and it's also got word final stress pretty much uniformly. So it's like, you know, you get the content part at the beginning, uh, you know, where you're focusing the most attention, and then you have the stress at the very end telling you this is the end of the word. I, I swear, it's like it, it basically is a conlang Turkish. It's just wonderful. <laughs> I've, I've wanted to do con- uh, Turkish for a while, so. Oh, God. Let me tell you, I signed up to take Turkish in my uh, junior year at college, and there was basically there were two people that were interested in taking this class, me and one other person. And so I emailed the professor and said, hey, look, I really want to take this class, but it's starting at 9 in the morning, and that's just not something I'm going to do. Is there any way we can move this? Uh, and she was like, like oh, I don't know. Uh, we could. Maybe if, uh, if, if you come to the first day of class and then we can discuss moving them. Like, no, I am not waking up that early. And that's the story of why I didn't take Turkish. Similar to the reason I didn't take uh, Japanese. That was the same reason I, I didn't take the second semester of Russian. <laughs> yeah, it was at like uh, 8.30 in the morning. So I took Chinese instead because it was in the afternoon. But now I'm taking I'm taking language class in the morning. I'm taking uh, Tagalog in at like 9. So. Shut up. You are <laughs> not taking Tagalog. You, are you serious? Yeah. It's the the class is actually titled Filipino, but which I find really hilarious. So Filipino is is like the official name for the 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 standard of Tagalog, but Tagalog does not natively include F. Yeah, well, it's actually it's it's actually Filipino with a P, right? But no, but they spell it Filipino with an F. Um. But it's a loan word. Uh, 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 so it's like most of your own speakers can't pronounce the name of the language. But anyway, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to be able to get over this. I can't believe that you're taking Tagalog, you jerk. How, who's teaching Tagalog in Wisconsin? <laughs> they didn't even offer that at Berkeley. They offered everything at Berkeley. They didn't offer that. They offer a lot of things. I was going to take Zulu, but it conflicted with my phonology course. Mm. Uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, I think we can move on to feedback. We've ceased talking about agglutination. Um, so we have an email from Michael. Uh, not our Michael, but another no, Michael. Uh, <laughs> uh, he says, hey, guys. I've been having a bear of a time getting going with the tech. For some reason, I can't get my hands on the Windows binaries that the LaTeX project website links to, and I can't stand Lick. The LaTeX wiki book uh, recommends using an online editor at scriblatech.com, 
But the site isn't taking new users anymore, besides that it, it's a freemium business model that gets you only five projects unless you pony up the dough. When I tried to register, it pointed me at sharelatech.com, which I'm going to try out. From what I can tell so far, it's easy to write the, out the code, and you just click a button that gives you a PDF right away. I'll keep you guys posted. This might be a great source for resource for Conlanger. So, um, we talked. We've we've talked about using uh, LaTeX for writing grammars before. William is really big into LaTeX because he uses it. He's he's used it for work and then sort of transferred it into his his use for Conlanger. And I've gotten I kind of got into writing grammars in LaTeX. It's um, using using I use Lick which he mentions that he can't stand. But uh, so I didn't look at the, these sites, but um, I guess it could be useful for, for people who are looking at it. He mentions writing the code. See, my thing is I hate having, I, I don't want to have to write the actual LaTeX code. I want to have a program do that for me. But uh, anyway, you guys are crazy. I wouldn't touch that thing with a ten foot pole. My goodness, I, I can't imagine. Now, I I did at one point in time. I tried to mess around with LaTeX a little bit. Uh, it's because uh, Doug Ball, uh, the creator of Scare, he's gotten into using it and seems to do it pretty well. He does it for um, he does it for his assignments. Um, you know, his, his ling- uh, the linguistics assignments he creates, and I think he also does his papers in it now. And you know, more power to him. But no, I'm just going to use a word processor. On Mac, I use Pages because I like it. And so I, I just, uh, it, it gets to a point where you have to ask yourself, uh, what is it getting me um, as opposed to what's it costing me? And it's like if you put in all this effort into learning this system, it's like you're spending more time on your formatting then you are on your conlanging. And then it's like, uh, to me, that's just not fun at all. Um, so I don't know. That's why I, uh, I, I, uh, use Lick because it's, it's, um, it, it basically does a lot of the, the, uh, LaTeX code. It does all the LaTeX code stuff behind the scenes. And yes, it did take a little bit of pain to get it. Up and running, installs libraries, install the 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 plugin I needed to to make glosses. But once I got it up and running, it wasn't really that hard to to uh, you know get on with the writing of the grammar. So I guess you know it's to each their own. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I I I would like to I would like to mention though that I just think that uh, there seem to be. I, I have been seeing lately a lot of beautifully formatted conline grammars. And of those, I can say, my, is the formatting just gorgeous? Um, and then that's, I think, about where it ends. So, <laughs> Are you trying to say something there without saying it? Uh, you, you, can, you, can, you can see what Gricean maxim I am flouting there and figure that out. Uh, but uh, but they they do just they sure do just look just great, um, and I'm sure they would look wonderful when printed out. Anyway, 
So, Mike, any opinions? Um, on LaTeX? Or just in general? Uh, I don't know. Well, on LaTeX, um, I mean, I've been looking for a... I'm, I've been looking to get away from my, my spiral-bound notebooks for a while. Um, yes, I do use spiral-bound notebooks. Uh. Um, <laughs> and actual note cards in a box. But, <laughs> yes. But uh, I would like to try to find a way to put online. I, would lo- I was looking at the tech. I still have to work on learning it. Um, so when I have attempted to put online, things I've tried, I've tried uh, doing a, like a live journal before or some kind of blog which was okay, but not everything I'd hoped for. And uh, using Word documents is okay, but once again, it's kind of, it, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm ho- for as wonderful as computers are, I'm still hoping for more. But um, yeah, until then, you know, as long as I have a notebook and a pen, I can do my work and don't need, you know, to have oh. batteries. Speaking of which, I, I, I would like to give a shout-out to Logan Kersley, if that's how you pronounce his last name. It might be Kersley. He just, uh, he just uh, sent a, uh, a message to the Conlang list today saying that he's gotten, uh, he's worked out kind of a research thing for a semester where he's going to be working on uh, some sort of uh, Conlang dictionary program. Nice. So yeah. we'll nice. see what comes of it. Yeah. It'll probably be just, uh, I probably think, uh, since he's getting actual academic funding, it may be targeted to field linguists, uh, ostensibly, but obviously he's a conlanger, so he's gonna have a little bit of our stuff in it. But just, yes, I hope that that turns into a good, uh, dictionary program. I read that update too, and I'm very excited, especially since he's going to, open source it as well so you know once he's kind of if he uh sort of falls by the wayside on updating it and getting it uh worked somebody else can pick it up but yeah i i hope to see that come into something i can use (laughs) yeah we we all would so we're wishing you the best logan if you're listening yeah so that's uh, about it for the show, and we even got two sort of special mentions that I was thinking of before the show, what was forgetting. Thank you, David. No and, uh, um, David, do you have, you have some, you have actually, um, a new project that you, uh, well, a new-ish project that you're working on. You're still on Game of Thrones, but you're doing this defiance thing on sci-fi. Ah, yeah, good old, uh, yeah, so uh, there's going to be a, a new show coming to Sci-Fi called Defiance. It is a, uh, it's uh, it's going to be a television show on Sci-Fi, and it's also going to be a massively multiplayer online RPG kind of uh, shooter. Mm-hmm. And they're, they take place in the same universe with the, uh, with the show kind of set, set, I'm sorry, with the show centered around St. Louis and the game centered around the Bay Area. Uh, and the idea is that um, uh, actions in the game will affect the show, and uh, and things in the show will affect the game, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a it's a really neat and ambitious idea, um, and uh, I've certainly, uh, but yeah. Also for the show, it's it's uh, it's kind of like uh, just a very short version is that uh, aliens, for whatever reason, have come to Earth and are stranded here, and now have to. Uh, humans and these aliens have to live together just to kind of 
get by. Um, the details will be filled in when the show comes. But uh, anyway, what I'm doing is that I've created uh, languages for uh, four different uh, alien species and writing. Oh, systems. wow. Four, four uh, different languages. Okay. So the, technically it's two full languages and then two kind of language palettes, but they don't actually get a lot of dialogue translated into them. So it's mainly just words and phrases here and there for the other two. Um, but yeah, they're two, you know, they're two different systems. And then there's three different writing systems. Uh, so one of the two, uh, one of the two non-full languages has a full writing system with it. Um, and so there's a ton of dialogue throughout the show and then also writing. Um, and so like you see signs and stuff in town that are, that are written in the various scripts. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. That's great. Uh, I, the, it makes me excited that it's not one monolithic alien culture. Yeah. That's come. It's, it's several different ones. Um, uh, the one thing I want to ask you, you, you're listed everywhere as language and culture consultants, so you have some input on sort of non-language bits of the culture then. Quite a bit, actually, quite a bit. So it's kind of like I, 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 I get like the script for, for each um, episode, and then I like read it, and I say, okay, this is what makes sense and what doesn't make sense for the various types of aliens like in the show. Uh, I've gotten to develop uh, a bunch of cool stuff. Like I developed uh, uh, different types of religious systems for uh, the various aliens. Uh, I've been able to kind of like uh, generate some, you know, like songs and chants here and there. Uh, And then I, I also just kind of, I basically just kind of get to give input whenever anything that's like the least bit cultural comes up. Um, It's just, it's, it's really, really been a blast. That's great. Well, then, uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was uh, uh, cool that you've got some, some more stuff going on. But uh, anyway, on to actually wrapping up the show. Uh, we'll start with Mike since, uh, since I, w- I was just having plug stuff. Uh, Mike, do you have any final words of wisdom? Well, um, I was actually look, keeping my eyes open this week for words of wisdom and, uh, in my planner, there's a nice little quote. It's not really sp- specifically for language, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it is not because things are difficult that, that we do not dare. It is because we do not dare that they are difficult. And it says Seneca is who they credit that to. And uh, as far as how that ta- attaches to this, to conlanging, you know, it's not too difficult. It's, don't think it's difficult, so don't try to do it. You know, try to do it and it won't be so hard. So go forth and <laughs> Do all the good stuff of conlangers. Make like that. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Uh, David, do you have anything? Don't use morphemes at all. <laughs> at all. No morphemes. It's bad for you. Zero tolerance policy on morphemes. Absolute zero tolerance. It is. It's bad for you. It's. It's kind of like. What is? What is it like? It, it's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like eating um, eating a steak with chopsticks that are on fire. But aren't uh, um, no? The answer is no. Okay, don't try to think about it. I'm <laughs> but l- leave it alone, Mike. Leave it alone. Uh, it's, it's past midnight. <laughs> I'm gonna say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. 
You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. What you eat there? Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. You are eating ice cream cones, the usual mm-hmm. kind. Just, just the, just the cones, not ice cream. Yeah, I've mostly finished the ice cream already. Oh, there was ice cream. Oh man, now I'm really jealous. <laughs> In between finding out that that uh, you were on your way home and. And starting a show, I walked down to the student union and got some ice cream and a waffle cone. I got mm. this, um, it's called Blue Moon. It tastes like uh, sugary cereal. Well, if you, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, nobody can guess my age. They usually think I'm about 10 years younger than I am. Part of it is my age. You look natural. about 14. Yeah. Yeah, a uh, part of it is my natural uh, gorgiosity. Um, gorgiosity. Hmm. Pretty sure that's a word, and um, uh, I think the rest of it is, is is my genes. Everybody in my family looks very young, or at least everybody on the Mexican side of my family. All all the people on the white side of the family, from what I hear, look old and drunk. You should understand that the quality of your voice suggests that you do have facial hair. <laughs> really. Very strongly, very strongly. It's called Google Stock. It's actually a special nice. app. That might so, be a different story, but I've because I've heard that as well. That like, uh, mm-hmm. well, like I, just the story that a woman didn't know she was pregnant, but then based on the uh, you know ads she received, um, you know, basically the ads figured it out first, and then she was like, oh, maybe that's why I'm throwing up and stuff. I guess they could they could uh, detect when you. Um Things like, oh, she's not buying tampons anymore. <laughs> mm, no. I'm. By the way, I'm. I'm. I think that. Uh, I think I'm really glad that that Bianca isn't here for this discussion. They swam. I like fish. I am a fire hydrant. We. Whoa, Jeff Boy. We yaffikas. You dofis. We Yeah, that's what your voice sounds what like the- in your head. So I ha- do I have like a noticeable West Virginia accent because I never hear it myself. Uh, you have a noticeable voice quality. Yeah, no, it's very beardish. Uh, it's it's got a foamy quality to it. Momentito, uh, let me let me ask real quick, just one second. My grandmother's apparently dropping some juice off. You think I'm going to have time? Like she's she's just down the street, but she's going to come. And she's going to have this juice, and then I'm going to go pick it up. Is that all right? Uh, sure. Cool on me. If you hear her meowing, it's the cat. Okay. Okay. It's not the dog, though. His grandmother is dropping off some juice? 
I don't know, I suppose. I'm curious about this. I was, my earwax was bothering me, so I took a Q-tip to it. Yeah, it was a, it's, it's, it's apple juice, and it's in a West Virginia-style jug. Um, okay. You know, it's, it's the kind of jug that you'd expect to see, like, you know, three X's written on the front of it. Uh, yeah, like like somebody who would who would yeah. actually play a jug would use. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's going to become an instrument as soon as the juice is all out of there. Yeah, it's a, it's a good show. Yes. It's 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 Netflixable. So um, if you have that, you is that you a verb? It. Is that a verb? It is now. I just verbed Netflix. It. I was just thinking about the Spanish version of that next next Netflixable. <laughs> uh, Netflixiar. No, well, that's a verb. But Netflixable. Netflixable. Yeah, you can do that. The word here, I, and yes, you want vocabulary. Uh, the word for beatification is papas fritas. I was born a lactose intolerant. This is true. But I now take two pills every single morning, and I am just as good as anybody else. So I, <laughs> I, I drown in ice cream. My hovercraft in, is full of eels in Tokipona. How how long is that one? Um, well, it's two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, fifteen words, and each word is l- shorter than five letters. Tomotawa lonsewi supatelomili jo e kalalinya lon insaale. Watashi no hoba kurafuto wa unagi de ipades. Hey, that was pretty good. <laughs> I can read it so long as I can see it, but <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I can't create myself. My never, my hovercraft is full of eels and Dothraki. I got it. Where is it? Hovercraft and Nira Ovleson.